Hosea chapter 6. Uh, continuing to work our way, I, I couldn't help but think the song selection this morning was uh, so much needed uh, when we read the heaviness uh, of the prophet Hosea and really all the minor prophets in regards to uh, what they bring to bear in the life of Israel in this case and Israel and Judah uh, in other cases as well. But it's a heavy, it's a heavy message. In fact, last week uh, we shared uh, really what was from the first person from Hosea, uh, his exhortation to the people of Israel. Certainly uh, it is inspired and in some ways uh, it was also God's uh, invitation to his people to return. But if you read that, it's in the first person. And so this is Hosea as he's prophesying of what's coming upon the people of Israel for their harlotries, which is a word he likes to use a lot, their adultery. Uh, it's almost as if uh, he's exhorting the people himself in verses 1 through 3 because he says here, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Uh, I can almost, uh, in my mind's eye, see Hosea after the prophecies he's already giving and the, and the dread that he sees, and even in his own experience and his relationship with Gomer, how the broken heart of, uh, of Hosea caused him to cry out in this way, and he's crying to his people, Come. Let us return to the Lord. But then in verse 4, it shifts back, and it seems as though now God is speaking to Israel in the first person, uh, obviously through the prophet, but the, the tone shifts here. Now Hosea has given his exhortation as an Israelite. Oh, let us as a people come to the Lord. And, and he's ended his exhortation, and now the Lord chimes back in as it were or interrupts his prophecy and now the Lord is speaking to Israel and you can almost hear the same compassion in some ways the same heaviness as he begins in verse 4 what shall I do with you O Ephraim what shall I do with you O Judah for your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets and I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments of you are like light that goes forth. You hear Hosea coming back in here. And then God again in verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They have all dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled herself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for the worship as it has already begun in our hearts this morning through song and through calling our minds to, to the truth and the glories of Christ and the cross. The words echoed in my own hearts regarding how is it that I should gain from such a sacrifice and it is almost unanswerable. There is no reason or merit that we should gain, nor is it evident in the life of Israel. There was nothing in us by which we ought to gain the benefits of Christ's suffering. But, Father, there is much in it. It is purchased our redemption. It is your glory on display. So, Father, there is much to be gained in regards to the display of your glory. So, Father, I pray that that worship will continue this morning through the, through the preaching of your word, through the hearing of it, through the understanding of it, through the embracing of it, and through the living out of it. So help me this morning as I speak, Lord, clear my thoughts of all things that would be distractions and contrary to those truths that your word reveals. And Father, clear the hearts and minds of those in this room of all those same things. And Father, help us to see you through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Just a few uh, comments to share uh, this morning. I know uh, our time perhaps is slightly less, but worth that this morning. But uh, as I mentioned, Hosea is kind of addressing us in verses 1 through 3 in the first person. But you hear God coming in. So this is God speaking to his people Israel. And, and so it is the same for us today. So it's not Larry speaking to you. It is God speaking to his people today. And I say his people because we can make application to America. There is great, uh, there are great parallels in regards to what Israel was doing and what our nation is doing today. But I'm saying that in the terms of the church as well, because I think there are some parallels in the church uh, that Israel was experiencing as well. But I want to point out to you in verse four, first of all, this, what seems to be a divine exasperation. Uh, I think it's this rhetorical. I don't think God is asking Israel to answer the question as to what he's going to do with them. He knows exactly what he's going to do. In fact, the prophet has come to say he's going to bring judgment. And so God is not entertaining from Israel their, their ideas about what might ought to be done. It is rhetorical. But you can hear the exasperation, as it were, or, or the, the dread in it all. What shall be done with you, O Israel? What shall I do with you? I can, I can relate to that as a, as a young child and adventurous as I was and sinful, how I would go out and do something new every day that would get me in trouble. And my mom, in exasperation, sometimes would say things like, what am I going to do with you? I mean, I, I tell you today, and, and you don't do that tomorrow, but you do something just as bad the next day and every day thereafter. What am I going to do with you? Well, she wasn't asking me. Because my advice would have been, leave me alone. And let me do whatever I want to. She wasn't inquiring of me what she ought to do. She was expressing her parental exasperation with the fact that I did not seem to be able to learn the principle involved in what she told me not to do today. It was almost as if she was saying, Larry, if you could just get the principle, 
It would guide you tomorrow and the day after, and you wouldn't be doing the things you do consecutively because the principle would be guiding you. But what am I going to do with you? I can't seem to get through to you. I think that's what's more reflected here. But the difference is my mom was imperfect. She was fallible. This is, this is a divine exasperation with the people of God. He's looking upon those whom he has called out of heathenism and idolatry and pagan worship and set them aside as a people unto himself. And he had extended every grace and every mercy and every blessing to these people. And yet day after day, year after year, they kept falling away. And it's as if he, in exasperation, looks upon these people and says, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? Him. It was really a way intended to illuminate, I think, the many mercies already extended to Israel in both blessing. They were in the promised land. That was what was promised. You have inherited it. You are eating from crops that you didn't sow. You are, you are drinking wine from vines that you didn't plant. The olive oil in your lamps comes from olive trees that you didn't plant. You invested nothing here. I brought you here, gave you the land of wicked men, and you are now benefiting from what they sought to benefit from. I, you are utterly existing upon my mercies and my grace, but yet you spurn it at every moment. What am I going to do with you? What is there to be done for you more not only the blessing, but also he had done much for them in mercy and the extended and even measured discipline and even the afflictions that they had endured. Time after time, they had fallen before their enemies when they had resisted God, but yet when they turned back to God, he would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies and establish them once again. Over and over and over, they had this same experience but yet they never finally were faithful to God. And it's as if God is saying to them, what am I going to do with you? What more could have been done? You have had mercies displayed and blessings that you never merited, that you never deserved by your behavior. They are covenant relationships and you've been afflicted and disciplined by the hand of a loving father in measured ways, but yet you still resist and you still push against or push against the pricks as the New Testament describes it. You work against the goads. What more can be done for you, Ephraim? It really is sobering. And I thought about that in the application to our own nation and even to the church, the contemporary church. What more? What more could be done to turn us back if we close our eyes and our hearts to the mercies already given, whether they be in the bounty and the blessings of living here in a free nation or whether they be not hearing and blind to the afflictions that we are beginning to endure now and have been enduring now for decades what more can be done than the mercies of God extended to us in blessing and bounty and influence in the world? And also, at the same time, His measured discipline in that things are not going well for us. There's a place in the Scriptures that talks about you have purses and you're filling them full of money, but they're always empty. It's as though there's a hole in there. And the more you make and put into your purse, the more you lack. I put the holes there, God is saying. I'm the one who has made sure that your prosperity comes to nothing. 
You've got a, your cracked cisterns, your, your cracked reservoirs. Uh, you can't keep the water in. All these things are mercies from God to call you back from your resistance and hard-heartedness and rebellion. So what more could be done for America? What more? I was watching a documentary recently in regards to the beginning of World War II, and, and it really is nothing short of a miracle of God that we prevailed in World War II. I mean, the German technology and power by, by no estimation by any military expert would have been able to be overcome by, by such a conglomerate as the Allies. There is no way. And it is nothing short but divine intervention that preserved this world from being this day under this Nazi rule and this, this dictatorship. And so we've received bounty and blessings from God. All of Europe has received the blessings of God in the overthrow of such evil. But yet, how long have we been persistent? We took our freedom in many cases and used it as a cloak for lasciviousness, as the New Testament says. And we thought our freedom meant the ability to do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, even sinning against our own God. And so the affliction begins to come. The days begin to be darkened. Our children began to rebel. Drug enters in. Free love and the free sex of the 60s starts penetrating out into there. There's cohabitation and there's all sorts of perversion and it's growing exponentially. And we look around and we see the darkness today. And I think to myself, oh, the mercies of God. What more can He do? What more can God do to turn us back if we have rejected Him? Notice as well in this passage that not only does he say this to Israel, which he means by Ephraim in verse 4, but in the second phrase, he expands it to mean the southern kingdom also. And he says, and to you also Judah. So Judah was quickly following the same trajectory. I thought about that in terms of Judah being the southern kingdom, although Judah had not yet deteriorated to the de degree and <coughs> to the depth of Israel. They nevertheless shared many of the common practices and corruption of Israel. They were literally on the same trajectory. In fact, in 722 BC, they would fall to the Babylonians because they were on this same trajectory. This was sobering this week as I reflected upon just this small phrase that he included Judah here because this prophecy was primarily spoken to Israel, Ephraim. Hosea was in Israel. He, wasn't in, he wasn't, in, wasn't in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. He's speaking primarily to them, but he throws in Judah occasionally. And it's as if God is warning the southern kingdom that the same, the same destiny that Israel is going to experience is going to be set aside for you as well. Take warning, take heed, Judah, although you've not descended to that depth yet, you are on the same trajectory. When we observe others who once professed a faith in God, turning away or drifting away from God, and when we see the Lord patient and gracious in His reproof, and then becoming stronger and more severe in His discipline, seeing their affliction, we ought to consider our own course. Is the fruit born in our neighbor's life which has brought about God's judgment uh, grown from the same seeds that we are planting in our own lives today. That's the message here to Judah. Think about that. 
If you've been a Christian very long, you know of many throughout the years who have shown some profession of faith in Jesus Christ and like the seed that was sown on shallow ground, there was growth there and, and they showed the life and you thought surely these people have come to know the Lord, but then things start changing and you see them begin to drift away and, and, you, and you think you, you dread or you're saddened by their departure from God and you can think in your mind of the fruit that's being born in their lives that was evidence that they were moving away from God. But do you ever entertain the possibility that you are sowing the same seeds although they haven't borne fruit as their lives has? That's a serious question, and I think that's why Judah is included here. Though you have not yet descended to the depths of your neighbors and your brothers, know, Judah, that the same seeds are being sown in your own hearts, the seeds of self-sufficiency and of pursuit of prosperity and their lust for passion and all these other things are, are being sown in your own hearts. And the only difference between you and, and Israel is that they have borne fruit earlier than you have borne fruit. But if you do not change your course, you will bear the same fruit and also the same judgment. In fact, he touches on that in verse 11 when he says, oh, also Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you. So I think in application, we ought, to think of our, we ought to think of ourselves in that way as well. When we see God's heavy hand of discipline in our nation today and upon nations and upon organizations, we ought to ask ourselves as the institution of the church, are we, are we sowing into our lives the same seeds that are producing that in their lives? I think it was Francis Schaeffer who once said that the, that the, that the philosophy of the world today will be the theology of the church 10 years from today. And that's a wise statement because we get, we get, we get acclimated to the ideologies of the world and slowly we acclimate ourselves to accommodate those. And when we bring them into the house of God and to among the people of God, we begin, to, we begin to let those ideologies influence our theology. And in the course of 10 years, 10 short years, it can change our theology to become an accommodating theology. One that embraces the ideologies of the world, which are purely put human, humanistic. That have man as their highest object. We so easily deceive ourselves to think that God will not tolerate in others' lives, but He will tolerate it in ours. He will not judge America, though her sins exceed those of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are, we're more devoted, or we're, more, we're smarter, or we're wiser somehow, or more spiritual than they are, more loyal. I remember as a kid, I've shared this a number of times, but... When my brother would get caught in some infraction and dad would come down the hall purposefully making his presence known by walking across the floor, even though I had not been caught, I trembled. I was afraid that somehow the wrath of my father might spill over today and, and gather me up as well because he don't know what I did. Right now, I've gotten away with it, but I know that I'm guilty and deserving of that. It would have been insane for me to think that my dad would not tolerate in my brother's life what he was gladly tolerating in my own. I knew that my dad didn't tolerate that in either life. You were not going to be dishonest, either one of you. But that's, that's what Judah was doing. 
They looked to Israel and they saw God's heavy hand and they thought themselves justified. We're, we're preserved. We're the southern kingdom. We're the righteous kingdom. Yes, God ought to judge the northern kingdom because they pushed away and they brought the people away to worship at false altars in, in, the, in the east on the other side of Jordan in some, in some cases. But we're, not, we're better than that. We're God's particular people and he will, not, he will not call us into account for the same things that they are practicing. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking that. If God is not tolerant and not accepting of lying and thieving and lust in the lives of your neighbor, he's not, a, he's not accepting of those in yours as well. And if perhaps he has granted you the grace and the mercy not to bring the fullness of the consequences of those sins upon you while they have been measured out more severely to your neighbor, tremble, tremble. Don't, set, don't settle in your mind that the reason for that is because you are not as unrighteous as they are. The seeds are the same. They are the same. And so when you see the addicted drug addict who's destroyed their lives, think not darkly, think not dimly or badly of him because the same seeds that are causing him to drive himself, to satisfy himself with the drugs, illicit drugs, is the very same seed in your heart that causes you to be satisfied by more money in the bank, by a bigger house, by a nicer car. Same seeds bearing different fruit in the lives of different people. You and I are no better if we are embracing those seeds and we ought to tremble even when we read of God's judgment upon Israel and later even upon the kingdom of Judah. We ought to tremble because the same seeds are always offered to us to be sowing into our lives and oh how easy it is in a prosperous time which was what it was in Israel's life to begin to take to ourselves bad seed and begin to sow it into our lives. It is a sobering thing. In verse 4 as well, we see his, his indictment as, as it were, I think again in summary form. But what was the problem with Israel and with Judah? He said, for your loyalty is like a cloud uh, and a dew that evaporates early. There's a lot, I think, meant here by loyalty. Though their sins were many, these were only evidences of the lightness of heart and mind with which they honored the terms of their covenant with God. Verse 7, he says, like Adam, like Adam, they transgressed. Their loyalty to God and to his covenant and the terms of their relationship with God was, was fleeting and it would go away. You think about a cloud. I think he means there like a morning cloud. If you've ever been up in the mountains, even, even sometimes where I live, we're sort of in a hole and in those damp mornings, sometimes we wake up and our house is in a cloud, but it doesn't take long when the sun rises over the horizon and starts penetrating. That, that mist just evaporates really quickly, sometimes within a half an hour, just like the dew. The dew gets on the leaves and on the grass and the sun comes up and when the heat comes on, the dew's gone. He says, that's what your loyalty is like, Israel. 
One minute you're claiming all the benefits of the covenant. You're even carrying out some of the practices involved in those terms of the covenant. But your loyalty to that covenant and to honoring the God of that covenant, it's like, it's like these clouds that are, appear one minute and as soon as a little bit of heat gets on, it just dissipates and it's nowhere to be found. So it is with the dew. You think about those two things as well as those things held out some promise. In a dry land, a cloud held some promise. Maybe there'll be rain. Maybe it'll provide for the fruitfulness of the land. Maybe, maybe we will have water to drink. Maybe the cisterns will be filled. It holds promise and so does the dew. We, t- we hear often in the scripture of the dew of Hermon, how it flows down into the valleys and fills the springs and provides nourishment and, and quenches thirst for the people. So it's striking to me that the two things he compared it to in and of themselves hold out promise. But the problem is, is they didn't stay put. The cloud didn't stay and the dew didn't run down. It didn't provide the nourishment. It was dissipating and it was going away. And so it is, I think, in some ways with the faithfulness and the loyalty of our nation and even the church today in our day. I mean, we're like the clouds and the dew. At one moment, we're going through the practices. He says later on, they were still offering sacrifices and burnt offerings. And so they were still doing things that were consistent with the terms of the covenant. But somehow or another, their loyalty to the God of that covenant and to the terms of that covenant was wishy-washy. It was fickle and fading always according to the heat that it was applied. Man, how, how much more guilty could we be as a nation and even the church of our day? How fickle and, and, and fading is our faithfulness to our own covenant with God? I have to admit that sometimes I'm ashamed of how lightly I handle the covenant and the terms of that covenant and the foundations and the basis for my covenant with God, which is now in Christ, which I think has always been in Christ in fact, I think part of their disloyalty involved the idea that not only were they practicing, which it says in verse 6, they were practicing, but it was a practice without purity. It was as if, it was as if they were going through the motions. In fact, I've always found this fascinating, but I believe that from the very beginning, uh, The primary covenant was a covenant of grace in which God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, that her seed will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And that's, that's Adam's hope. I don't know when it's going to happen, but someday there's a seed coming from the woman, and that seed is going to crush the head of the serpent who plunged us into this death by his temptation. And so I don't know when that's happening, but that's what I'm holding on to. And all the covenants after that that God made with his people, I think were indicative in some way of the fulfillment of that final covenant, that final covenant of grace where God would send the seed and the nations would be blessed through him. Even the Gentiles would come through faith through that seed. And I think one of the reasons that Israel could not be loyal to the covenant is because they reduced the the sacrificial system down to just parts of the covenant, things that that they were to practice, religious practice, and they thought they were in and of themselves sufficient. But have you ever wondered why God even provided for a sacrificial system at all? 
Why not just tell his people, you're my people and you're going to be marked by living according to these laws. Hear the laws, obey these, you will be my people. He did that in some way, but mixed into that, he said, oh, and by the way, here is a sacrificial system. Be careful to do this exactly as I tell you. And we know from history that Israel was filled with the blood of oxes and bulls and goats. What, what has all this bloodshed to do with being in covenant with God? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I think what Israel failed to understand, and to some degree Judah as well, is that the offerings and the sacrifices were not what God delighted in, but loyalty, understanding what these sacrifices point to. No, yes, offer those sacrifices, but your religious observance of those and routine observance of those is not in and of itself satisfying to God. Rather, it is what they point to that is satisfying to God. And that is the covenant. And you are disloyal to it when you go up and offer your sacrifices and your offerings and you recognize not that they are pointing towards the shedding of blood, not of goats and of bulls, but of the precious blood of the Son of God. We said it this morning. They said it in song. That's what they were not honoring. And without honoring that and without acknowledging that, you can't long sustain the terms of the covenant, the obedience required for the covenant. You have to have a sacrifice. And that's what it was pointing to all the way down through the history of Israel. And if they were to offer a sacrifice today, it would still be pointing towards the same thing, although that sacrifice has come and been made in Jesus Christ, which many of our Jewish, those we love, have not yet received and understood that all those sacrifices pointed towards the one who's already come and the sacrifice has already been made. So there was a disregard for what God delight and a regard for the, the, the things or the elements or the practices of that covenant. And it's so sad. Like I said in verse 7, I'll, I know my time's short, but I'll close with these thoughts and perhaps conclude tonight. But in verse 7, it struck me that he says, just almost out of the blue, the transgression was like Adam. Some translations say they transgressed it as a man. One, one idea is that Hosea means here that they treated this precious covenant with God like it was just with some guy. You and I make a covenant, we throw a little salt over our back, handshake, walk away. It's pretty important. But if I violate it, hey, I'm a man. Sorry. <laughs> he said, they treat this covenant that way, as though they can enter in and out of it, benefit from it if they want. It's optional. They can kind of, this is a divine covenant. This is God himself who has entered in, condescended to enter into a sinful man into a covenant relationship whereby he promises to deliver them from their sins and bring them into his presence eternally with all glory. It's not the covenant of a man. And it ought not to be handled with such lightness as the covenant of a man. But there's another way, I think, in which it applies as well. They sinned like Adam in that Adam by Eve and connected with Eve uh, in regards to what was lost. For Adam in their sin and their choosing of the temptation over God's commands, they lost it all. Eden, provision, Purpose, 
life itself. See, there was a tree of life in the garden. And outside the garden, unable to enter back in, they lost access to the tree of life. Suddenly, they're not going to live forever anymore. They don't have continual access to the, to the life. And so in the same way when Israel is not honoring the covenant and they cut off the ideal from the sacrifices pointing towards the very foundation of that covenant, which is Christ, is basically to cut themselves off from the very source of the life. And so by dishonoring the covenant, by being disloyal to the covenant, they they sinned in the way that Adam did. They lost it all. You don't get all the benefits of the covenant while, while disregarding or rejecting the very foundation of that covenant, which is the shed blood of Christ. So for those who think you can do what you will, handle lightly Christ while receiving all the blessings and prosperity and abundances of God in this life, you are undermining your own relationship in that covenant. You cannot deny the very foundation of that covenant while still claiming to want to or being entitled to receive the benefits of that covenant. You will not enter into eternal life apart from Christ. So they sinned in Adam in that way. In fact, I wrote this in regards to Eve. You are not what you could be. That was the temptation. I've thought about this all of my Christian life. What was the heart of the temptation that was proposed to Eve that was so so deceitful and so programmed to provoke her falling and then her sharing with Adam? What was it underneath that that made her so incredibly vulnerable to that temptation? And this is, this is my paraphrase of what was being said, in, a, in essence, underneath the temptation. The message from Satan to Eve and to Adam, by extension, was this. You are not what you could be. You are not what you could be. There's something more, something better for you. And God has withheld that from you by his prohibition. That is deadly. More. You could be more. God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the good and knowledge, good, good, the knowledge of good and evil, for if you know that, you will become like God. He's holding something back from you. You could be better. My goodness. Is that not what we're being driven into us every day through the media in our day today? Even the U.S. Army. Be all you can be. Everything we're sold is to make us better. You can be better. You deserve more. I've heard commercials and I think to myself, the things they tell me I deserve, man, I must have a really so low self-esteem because I don't think I deserve that at all. I don't deserve that. Maybe I've got the money to get it, but it's not because I deserve it. And we're constantly fed this same lie in more subtle forms in our generation today. There's more for you. Following God, yielding to his command, trusting in his design for your life is holding you back. There's more. You can be more. You can be happier. You can be fuller. You can be more attractive. You can be more desirable. There's so much more for you. And Eve believed it. And Adam joined with her in that sin and they were cast out of the very place where they were being all that they were designed to be. Do you think God created Adam and Eve with some deficiency? They were exactly as they were intended to be in the garden. 
and they sold it all for the empty promise that you can be more. There's more for you. God doesn't want you to be limited in any way. He wants to prosper you. He wants to make you wealthy and famous and give you a great name. Oh, how we fall like Adam fell. Essentially, Hosea is saying to Israel, so it is with your fall, Israel. You've gave it up too. He brought you to the promised land and guaranteed that it would be yours forever if you would but yield to his prohibitions in regards to your sin. But you've not done that, Israel. In fact, you've taken the very elements of his covenant and you've made them into some religious observance and you've forgotten about the real ground of that covenant and the grace of God. And, and because of that, you forfeited paradise. You for, forfeit the promised land. You're going away from here. You're going into Assyrian captivity. They're going to carry you out of the promised land because you sinned just like Adam did. And I say to us as well as America... It's essentially the same sin. We abandon our foundations, Judeo-Christian foundations. We, we abandon our founders who, who believed that there was a divine providence in the establishment of this nation. And we have moved away from that God. And in doing so, we are forfeiting the very blessings that this nation has enjoyed. Because we are, we're, we're rejecting the founder. We're rejecting the gracious God who provided for our establishment as a free nation. And I'll, I'll tell you with all my heart, we're not going to hold on to that freedom long. Once we separate ourselves from the very foundation of that freedom, there is no freedom apart from those who are free in Christ. Whom the Son frees is free indeed. Whom Americans, politicians, and governments, and militaries free are only temporarily free. Every generation has to decide what it's going to do with that freedom. And the more we move away from Christ as that source, the more danger we are in. I must need to conclude this morning. Uh, here's how divine providence works in my notes. Somehow I wound up with Ryland or Harrison's little truck. <laughs> That's my signal. That's enough, Larry. Stand with me this morning. I want to conclude my thoughts tonight. Uh, there is such, uh, I'm so thankful reading back through the book of Hosea again. I am so thankful that by God's divine providence, he inspired Hosea to along the way insert these glimmers of hope. Because if they were not there, this would be crushing. It would be crushing. Not only to Israel, but to us. Because there are so many parallels that I would feel so defeated. So the warning from Hosea for Christians today is number one be thankful that we have a secure redemption in Christ Jesus but let that not cause us to become like Israel was and presumptive in regards to what it means to live the Christian life let's maintain our loyalty our faithfulness to God not only the covenant but to the God of our covenant let's pray together Father thank you for your word Lord it's almost haunting as we sit down and really think about the comparisons between the things which brought judgment not only upon your own people but of wicked nations in history and how so many of those things are being repeated not only in our nation but in, the, in all the free nations, Father, certainly throughout the West and, and just as clearly throughout the East and all over the globe. As a people, it seems that we have become like those of
who built the Tower of Babel, who have come together now with one language and one source of communication, one platform upon which all can commute. And we've essentially in our own humanistic endeavors decided we would build a tower into the heavens to make a name for ourselves. <coughs> Father, there's no reason for us to believe that you will not bring that tower to rubble just as you did in Babel. It is not ours to ascend to your place and to your throne to make a name for ourselves, Father. It is ours to, to yield to you, to submit to you, and to, to trust in Jesus Christ, to, to enjoy you, Father, forever, and to glorify you. In these moments of quiet reflection, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you may illuminate in our own hearts how close we are individually and even as a church and as a nation to the very same judgments pronounced upon Israel. And Father, I pray that you might move our hearts, that we might turn back to you, that we might hear the exhortations of Hosea, that we might turn back to you individually and as a nation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.